walking in a country road And I been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 38. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name There's a progression, I think, that is common for many pilgrims. They start their pilgrimage experience in Spain, drawn in by The Way or Paulo Coelho or Kirkling or Kim Hyo-sun or whatever rings that bell. In time, they might expand their footprint more widely across Europe, dipping into Portugal or France or maybe the Via Francigena to Rome. Then, however, comes the allure of and the growing courage and confidence to explore more widely afield. That is certainly my story. Increasingly, pilgrims are drawn in greater and greater numbers to Japan, sometimes for Shikoku and its 88 temples, but more commonly to the Kumano Kodo, a network of shorter pilgrimages on the Kai Peninsula south of Osaka. I suspect the Kumano Kodo has quickly gained attention for a couple of reasons. First, it's a fantastic place. The walking is excellent, the sacred places, both built and natural, along the way are potent and striking, and the infrastructure, the facilities along the way, are already quite good. Second, the marketing has been brilliant. A partnership with the Pilgrimage to Santiago has led to the creation of the Dual Pilgrim Certificate, linking together the two UNESCO World Heritage Pilgrimage Sites. The coordination provided by the Tanabe City Kumano Tourism Bureau makes it particularly easy for Western pilgrims to navigate through any culture shock. In this episode, I hope to introduce a wider audience to the Kumano Koro. First, I speak with Mike Rhodes, the destination manager and guide for the aforementioned Tanabe City Kumano Tourism Bureau. He offers an overview of the history behind the Kumano Koro and the pilgrimage traditions surrounding it. He's then followed by Greg Ng, who walked the Kumano Koro just a couple of months back. He shares his experiences walking with his father and offers some practical advice. And throughout, you can enjoy me struggling through totally inconsistent pronunciation of Japanese place names. There are some problems so grievous, they cannot be edited out. It's episode 38 of the Camino Podcast. Off we go to Japan. Mike Rhodes serves as the destination manager and guide for the Tanabe City Kumano Tourism Bureau after having previously operated as an independent guide to the Kumano Koro. And he joins me now to discuss this Japanese pilgrimage. Thanks for talking with me, Mike. Yeah, no problem, Dave. Glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this since I walked the route a few years ago, and I've just been eager to learn more, so I'm happy to be able to talk with you. And maybe we could start with your personal background. How did you end up living in Japan, leading groups on the Kumano Koto? So that's a question I ask myself every day. <laughs> I'm still here. No, I truly enjoy it here. I come from Colorado in the United States, where there's the Rocky Mountains and a real natural landscape. And I think when I came to Japan originally to teach English, I didn't know anything about Japan. I was in the mood for an adventure. And I wound up in this rural area by chance. And I think it, I had a real connection with it. Initially, that's how I think would, would grasp me here. And then after living here a while and making friends and teaching English for a number of years, I just it started to feel like a second home. So 
That's the short story. How long have you been there now? 23 or 24 years now. Wow. Yeah, this is not a short time thing. No, no. It was gradual. It wasn't like I just decided when I first got here, oh, I'm going to stay forever. It's just like, like I said, I wake up every morning and like, wow, I'm still here. It's cool. <laughs> so everybody listening knows what the Camino de Santiago is, but maybe, I don't know, 5%, 10% of the audience has heard of the Kumano Kodo. So what is this route and what's the history behind it? It's somewhat of a complicated history. And the short answer is that it is originally it was a series of zones that developed sacred sites independently of one another, focusing primarily on nature worship. Just like many other native cultures around the world, people found objects in nature as religious focuses. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, they have that sense in their native religion called Shintoism. The focus is on a kami. Kami is a god. There are multiple gods, and they exist in everything. And so if you found something wonderful in nature, something obscure or dynamic, a bigger tree or tops of mountains, a meadow with mist in the morning, you would definitely sense that feeling that Kami was there. So these areas around the peninsula got started as these centers of natural worship. And then after that, over a period of time, and more people came to the area, they found it a, a sense that this area was unique in that it was difficult to get to, it was somewhat isolated, it had these rich set of trees and the key mountains, and that made a, an impression upon them, and it wasn't easy to get here. Then in about the 8th century, you've got these men that are coming down the Omine-Okugake route, they are the Shugensha, they are men who are mountain ascetic priests, they are influenced by Shintoism, which is the natural religion that developed in Japan, and the incoming influences of Buddhism, They've also been influenced by Taoism, and they do these extreme ablutions like under waterfalls, standing and praying for a long time, living in caves to try to seek some form of enlightenment. And so they've established a sort of religion in the 7th and 8th centuries, and after that you're getting stronger and stronger versions of Buddhism coming in, wave after wave coming in from China, and originally from India, of course. But in the 9th and 10th century we've got one that's unique, that's called Shingon Buddhism, that is an esoteric kind of Buddhism that took root in Koyasan. What's significant about that is that it spoke to the people as far as you can seek rebirth in this lifetime. So you've got this natural landscape that has formed. On top of that, you've got these Shugensha that are mountain ascetic priests who connected with the natural environment, the rugged key mountain range. And then you've got these waves of Buddhism coming in. And so Kumano area has got this lattice work of religious centers. You've got that natural and that Buddhism sort of blended together. And that became the tapestry that is this peninsula. That became the overlaying depth of religion. And not just on one level, not just a pilgrimage that's on like a goal, for example, not a visit to like say the Vatican, which is a center of, of Catholic religion, but there are five major routes, five major pilgrimages that overlap this area to make up the Kumano Kodos. So it's a really an elaborate tapestry going more than a thousand years in the area. You mentioned there are five different routes, and you talked about the sacred aspect of the natural setting. And then beyond that, there's not just the Santiago de Compostela or Vatican, but there are also several key shrines in the area. Is that correct? That is correct. In those centers of worship that got developed, three major zones, 
where these three brain shrines are now located and have been located for over a thousand years. Some of their history, they say, dates back either 1600 or to 2000 years originally when people worshipped at these, these areas. So there are three grand shrines. There's the Kumano Hongu Grand Shrine, there's the Kumano Hayatama Grand Shrine, and the Kumano Nachi Grand Shrine. And in the sacred loop, you could complete your pilgrimage, you could complete your purification. So you've got sites as well as the pilgrimage itself. So it's not just the journey, but there are some destination places along the way that were important. What are the rituals of worship in those areas? Those of us familiar with the pilgrimage in Spain, we're familiar with some of the common rites. What would pilgrims to these shrines engage in? In olden days, when they used to come down, they would come down and uh, hit what were said to be 99 oji, or subsidiary shrines, that enshrine certain kumano gods, and they would pray and seek purification in each of those. That would entail perhaps maybe some prayer, or in the sense that some of the oji were along the rivers, they would cross back and forth across the river to completely immerse themselves in the water and be purified multiple times on their way along the path. Now, it was pretty treacherous as you got down to where, where I live, on Tanabe, on the southern part of the coast. The rivers coming away from the center of the coast get quite a bit of water. And so there are tales, records of people being washed away or trying to cross on these heavy rivers. But they truly believe in order to purify yourself completely, you had to immerse yourself in the water and eventually make your way to the shrine. So you've got all these shrines and multiple stops along the way. And then when you get to the Grand Shrine, uh, of course, you have to make an, an initial meeting and there would be elaborate ceremonies. You would stay and then have to be purified in a, a variety of settings and then come back and meet the gods and be a grander ceremony. What I think is interesting is there are five higher ranking subsidiary shrines called Gotai Oji along the way. Okay. And not only did they do these ceremonies, but they also watched sumo. They also wrote poetry. They would have competitions to write waka, which if you're familiar with haiku, mm -hmm. is a 575. But the waka is 57577. And they would write poetry about their experiences or what they were feeling. And then later times, actually, maybe up to 400 years ago, when the pilgrims saw a reboom, they would gather and, and have a dinners together and parties. So it was kind of a touristic thing later on in the history of the pilgrimage. Anyway, those are some of the things that they would do along the way. That's really neat. A few years ago, a relationship was established between the Kumano. And that, is that right, Kumano? Yes, that's right, Kumano, yes. I get thrown off by trying to pronounce things like they're in Spanish. <laughs> the Kumano Kodo and the Camino de Santiago, that relationship was formed. Why? Why did that connection form and what does it entail? That's a good question and it's a long, long history. It's longer than what I thought before I first joined. But I guess back in 1998, its roots go back that far. And originally it was the Camino de Santiago was looking for other world pilgrimages to sort of partner with in a case of promotion, but also to sort of just to connect with other great pilgrimages around the world. And they approached people in this area. And so the Wakayama Prefecture, prefecture is like a state, and the province of Galicia had an agreement, and they signed a sort of a sister road agreement back then. And then in 2008, the city tourism bureau of Tanabe and the Turismo de Santiago de Compostela had a joint promotion project they started. And then as recently as 2014, the Tanabe City and Santiago de Compostela signed sister partnership city agreements. So it wasn't just the bureaus, the whole cities were sort of getting in on it. Hmm. And finally, 
The dual pilgrim program was established in 2015, just four years ago. Okay. Which you are the <laughs> 500th member, which I think is quite exceptional. Thank you for participating. It was pretty amazing. I don't know that I have ever been celebrated quite in that way. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a humbling experience. And I know I'm not alone. It helped, of course, that I was preceded by 499 others. What has the impact of this relationship been? Is there a, a very clear increase in numbers going on in terms of pilgrims on the Kumanokoro? Well, in relationship to the establishment of the dual pilgrim program from 2015, there has been a general increase. And at the time, this was heavily promoted. Certainly more people from Spain and other people who were familiar with the Camino began to come. And every year, we get more and more people who have done the Camino to want to participate in the program. But also know over the last five or ten years, gradually, that the Camino Codo has also been gaining popularity as well, just as a world heritage location. So certainly the pilgrim has had an impact on that. You're the 500th pilgrim on both sides of the ocean, but we're, as of October of this year, we're up to 3,034. Wow. From four years, so that's pretty awesome. What's the next big celebration number, 5,000? Well, they did 1,000 and then they did 2,000. I think, they're yeah, they're probably going to shoot for 5,000 now just because the numbers uh, are increasing and it's hard to throw that big party like you, uh, you know, all the time. <laughs> Yeah. That's probably the target. I haven't, I haven't gotten an official word, but I'm guessing that's what it would be. You mentioned before there are these different routes, and that's the first discovery someone looking into the Kumanokoro will make, is that it is this collection of different routes. And that can actually be kind of intimidating at first. It took me a little while to wrap my mind around what I was seeing and to figure out how I would approach this. Could you talk about what those different routes are and what their characteristics are, what someone might be drawn to about each one? That's a good question. And we get that question also quite a bit. How to do the Kumano Kodo? How yeah. to get your mind around it, right? Because it's not a direct route. It's not a clear destination, as might say. But the most popular route is the Nakahechi route and the most well-traveled route in the area. It's also the easiest to get accommodation for, and it's a great place for people to start if they want to get their head around what is the Kumano. It's the closest to the traditional pilgrimage from, used to be from Kyoto down to Osaka, come down the coast and start from Tanabe. But all that route, that old route, is, a lot of it has been lost, and now it runs along highways, except to when you get to Tanabe. Now, Nagahechi goes right through the middle of the peninsula, and there are lots of variations there. Dave, you mentioned you had done the Kohechi before from Koyasan. And again, Koyasan is the center of Shingon Buddhism. And that route is gaining more popularity. It has improved signage. It has accommodation each of the places you can stop, although it's much more rugged. It's definitely not for beginners along that way. And there's certain times of year you can't walk it because of the snow that may fall. But I think a lot of people appreciate its more, even even more remote aspect. I don't know what your experience was on it and what you felt, but maybe it was something along that. I loved it. It definitely was more strenuous, more mountainous. But Koyasan is such a special place that it really was a, a lovely place to start walking. Oh, that's good to hear. The history that's preserved so well there is just amazing. That's unique. It's not many places in the world you can find something that's 900 or 1,000-year-old cedar trees, 300,000 gravestones in the grave there at Okunuin, and those temples. It's just, it's pretty auspicious. Yeah. But, um, 
Other than those two routes, there are a couple more that even now are becoming able to travel along with a little bit of signage. One is the Ohechi. That's the route that follows along the southern coast. It's not as old as the others, but it would start from Tanabe and then go along to Susami along the coast. Really, there's not as much accommodation at the moment. Hopefully in the future there will be, but you can still walk a good section of that and double back to Tanabe. Some people are trying that now, now that they see there's some signage and get a coastal view of this pilgrimage. Another one is the Iseji. During the Edo period, that's when the capital had moved to Tokyo about 400 years ago, many of the shogun or the shogun's lords would come to visit Issei, which now many consider to be the most important shrine in Japan. Hmm. Recently, the newly enthroned emperor here in Japan had most of his ceremonies take place there at Issei Shrine, which is in Mie Prefecture, right next door to Wakayama Prefecture. Hmm. And it's a shrine for Amaterasu, who is the sun goddess. And the sun goddess is one of the Kumano deities down in the Kumano Kodo area. It's the daughter of the founding deities in the pantheon of gods. Anyway, so people would go to Iseji and then walk down the coast. And it's about 170 miles of coastline and mountains to get to the Hongu Shrine and then complete their Nakahechi route from there. Starting next year, we're going to have more established accommodation for people to walk along that coast as well. So that's next year's goal is to have people being able to consider that as a possible route to enjoy your journey. So if you're looking for another journey day, you can come back. <laughs> but so those are four. That's four. And the last one is the Omine Okugake, which is those mountain ascetic priests, which is really, there's no accommodation at the moment. We don't do any kind of uh, facilitation along that route, but that route is available for those uh, mountain ascetic priests to walk along. And it's much more rugged than any of the four other routes. I took the, the river boat as well, and I believe that was characterized as a river pilgrimage, is that? Yes, so the centers of all these shrines were close to, somewhat close to water. Kumano Hongu Grand Shrine's original location was down at the delta of between three rivers, only two of which exist in that location anymore, but there was a huge flood and the end of the 19th century, and they, they moved up the remaining buildings up the hill. It's still very sacred, but the original site was right there by the river. And at that time, the Kumano River was at a, a level that you could get out right out from outside the shrine, if you were nobility, get on the boat and go 35, 40 kilometers down the river, almost to the ocean where the Kumano Hayatama, the second shrine was. So even now, that river is considered part of the pilgrimage, the Kumano Kodo pilgrimage. And it's also listed on the UNESCO World Heritage designation because it was so important. One of the biggest differences that I experienced with this route is that I booked everything ahead of time. The travel infrastructure is all kind of centralized. And yeah. someone coming from the Camino is going to find that to be jarring, surprising. It might be off-putting at first, but it's also kind of nice. <laughs> could, um, yeah. could, you, could you talk about this? Yes, yes, I can. And I think that's, that's a really good point, is that while both of these are pilgrimages, they're both passages you would walk along a road to seek some enlightenment or to enjoy being outside, they're very different. The Camino, you might be able to get away without having anything booked. And there's a lot more accommodation. My, my feeling is there's a lot more accommodation there along the Camino. Whereas in the Kumano, you're in a more isolated rural Japanese community and booking in advance is essential. Even with the popularity of the Kumano, the amount of accommodation that's available hasn't grown that much. 
So it's very important to at least plan six months in advance, I think. In some cases, for prime locations, uh, places that you've heard about you really want to stay at, you might even have to think closer to nine months or more in advance if you're thinking of, of booking a particular accommodation. That tends to be really popular. It gets a lot of work on the Internet. Characteristics that are different, not only is booking in advance very essential, the walks are much shorter. You don't have to walk a thousand kilometers to get to Santiago. You walk in stages that can be as short as four kilometers with some local transportation getting from one destination to another, or you could walk a longer distances that are up to you know, 15, 16 kilometers a day through the mountains. Another difference that I hear from people who've walked the Camino when they come is, oh, I've walked 30 kilometers a day, I'll be fine. And then the first day after walking eight kilometers, they're completely exhausted. Or maybe the second day when they don't realize they have to walk through the mountains for multiple days in a row. I don't know if that was your experience or maybe you were much more well prepared or not. I was ready, but there are a lot of steps. <laughs> there are a lot of steps. <laughs> That's a lot of steps. Lots of steps up and steps down. I don't know how many times when I'm guiding people ask, uh, is there much more up today? And that's just like, well, it's, it's a mountain. Yes, there's up and down and around and back and narrow and wide. And so I think actually that's an appealing point. So that at least if they come, and I, I think you mentioned that as well, is that it's something different. It's not just Camino. It's a different landscape. And you know what? Mentally, too, and psychologically, I think it puts you in a different place. Sometimes you feel, it's not claustrophobic, but you're surrounded by this realm, the sense that you're in another world, I think that you've almost slipped into like another dimension where you're not quite sure what to expect. And I think that's exactly what a pilgrimage should be. It should take you out of what your norm is. And if you can feel that, I think that adds a lot of value to your experience that you can say, yeah, it was something that was unique. Yeah, it did reach me on a different level. And yes, it wasn't quite the same as the Camino, but I still felt like I did a pilgrimage. And I think there's enough that will be familiar to people. You know, the way marking is good. There are stamps and a credential. There's a certificate at the end. There's enough familiar that I think people will feel comfortable, but also then pushed in a few specific areas. I completely agree with that. And I think not everybody even needs to hear the drum beat when they get the dual pilgrim. Whether they need the stamps or not, it's certainly a way to help them remember. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the accommodation and hospitality, just because it is such a distinct element of the route, and it's something that people think a lot about in Spain and they talk about a lot. What's distinct about this in Japan? What kinds of places do people stay? So in this area, the traditional inns, often called minshku, minshku is more of a family-run inn, or ryokan, which is a larger style inn, also usually typically family-run are the most common places to stay along the route. There are a couple hotels along the way, but what's unique about those locations is you go, they're welcoming you, they take great pride in what they determine in omotenashi, which is Japanese hospitality, where you are treated with warmth, you are treated as an important guest, you get really good food, and if they have a hot bath there, they, you get a hot bath Onsen, which is the hot spring in some of the locations, also is important purification bonus if you got that as well. But that's a whole package of just have a really warm stay and like you're staying with somebody's family is important. And if someone's listening and thinking like, 
Look, I don't speak Spanish, but, you know, I can fake that. But Japanese, that <laughs> seems really hard. How would you respond? Part of our job is to be able to bridge the gap between the foreign travelers that are coming through here and the Japanese providers that are here. We're the liaison. It's not just about us, but the, a lot of the inns have been prepared to have some ability of communication between the guests. So if they can get their booking done through either the Bureau and a number of other travel agencies that are partners with us who you can book as well, but their stay is pretty much well prepared so that the inns know what to expect from the guests essentially. And so they can feel more relaxed when they get here. They know they don't have to speak Japanese. I mean, if they want to speak some Japanese to show their appreciation or to practice Japanese, that's fine, but it's not essential to have a, an authentic experience, whether it's from the, the services they get from their luggage shuttle or whether it's transportation. There should be enough English to get them to where they're going, but you'll still hear the cacophony of Japanese around the shrines. Maybe the host doesn't speak any English, but yet you still feel their warmth. They know what to expect from you. I think people are well prepared or well supported when they get here. Yeah, I would agree. To wrap up, we've bounced around a lot, but maybe you could highlight one or two of your favorite places along the Kumano Koro. Wow, that's really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so how could I put that in context? There are a number of places that personally I find significant that keep me here, keep me wanting to introduce people to the area, but they might not be the same reasons other people have when they get here. If you're looking for a deeply spiritual moment, knowing the story of the flooded, washed away Grand Shrine at Oyunahara, where the large Tori Gate, Grand Gate stands, in Kumano Hongu Taisha area, I think that's pretty breathtaking. Know that many people had perished there in 1889 when the flood came down, and that it was the original location for a thousand years before they moved it up to the hill. You know, you can go there in any season and see the cherry blossoms in April. You might see the colors changing in the fall, and you're right there by the river. I just think that that is such a deeply spiritual place. You know, Nachi Falls is another. I think people get to the end of their journey and see those falls just cascading down close to where the shrine is right there at the base of the steps. And I think they feel a sense of accomplishment. And I do too. I can go back there anytime. And I wouldn't miss going down to the falls. But as I said, there are a number of places along the way that you can find. You take a, a moment to stop and think that are breathtaking, that are scenes of the mountains and the landscape that are just stunning. What were yours? Oh, man, the falls were definitely spectacular. I was definitely drawn to the highest elevation stretch on the Kohechi route. There was still a good amount of snow up at the top. Was there really? Um, wow. Yeah, and just a really striking experience. And then not too far down the road, a hot coffee <laughs> vending machine <laughs> and a bathroom with a heated toilet seat. So... <laughs> so the, the best of both worlds passing through there and definitely the hot spring experience i was skeptical going but the hot spring experience in japan after a day of of pilgrimage i mean what a perfect way to wrap up a day of walking well and it's not only just the experience itself it's also like it's been a long day like you're talking about those days on the kohechi where you're you're just so achy and your muscles, you're like, do I really, is there a bus? You know, <laughs> can I go off from here? But then you go in and you soak in the hot waters in one of the villages. They've got that onsen just up the street from one of the accommodations. And 
it just removes all that doubt the next day you get a good night's rest and bang you're on the trail again yeah and i think koyasan is such a special place that even if people aren't going to walk the kohechi route it's a really easy place to get to from Osaka. You can just take the train down and then take the lift up to Koyasan, and it's just a fantastic place to get in the mindset of pilgrimage. I also like it's so compact, too. And did you know there are two pilgrimage routes that you can walk either around the outside of it that are not too difficult, and you can do in sections. One is called the Women's Pilgrimage Route, or Nyonin Michi, which is kind of cool. Like if you had a couple days in Koyasan and, and already walked up and down the middle of the, because it's only three or four kilometers wide, I think. And there's another one that the, the face of it called the Choishimichi, which is the original entrance route. But anyway, it's nice. So if you have a couple days in Koyasan too, you can always add something to your experience there. For people who are interested and want to learn more about the Kumano Koto, where should they look? What they can do right off the bat, and this is the easiest one, is you get to your old Google and you type in the words uh, Tanabe and Kumano, and probably among the top five is our bureau at the top. You can look up Tanabe City Kumano Tourism Bureau, but you probably wouldn't have to put that far in your search engine before the, the title came up. Or, and I'll read you the website, it's www.tb-kumano.jp. They can look at information there. They can they can access the Kumano Travel Reservation site if they want to. They decide they want to book with us and have us help them with their experience here. There's a contact form that's in one of the pages that they have questions that they can send them, and most likely it'll be me answering the questions for them. That's probably the best way to get started. Fantastic. Thanks for talking with me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Dave, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure, and congratulations again on being our, our 500th pilgrim. <laughs> Greg Ng of Raleigh, North Carolina, walked the Kumanokoto just a couple of months ago, and he joins me now to talk about his experience on it. Thanks for talking with me, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity. What drew you to the Kumanokoto? I was looking for a chance to do my own soul-searching, almost like a, a walkabout. I've been working for about 20 years and wanted to kind of combine a sabbatical-like personal journey with some sort of very physical and mental type of challenge. With my family, we've had a goal of visiting a lot of the national parks here in the U.S. And we achieved a goal of reaching 100 national parks wow. uh, in 2017. Yeah, it was really great. And from there, I said, well, what's next? And I really zeroed in on the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So when I had a situation where I wanted to go on a long journey, I wanted to walk it, and I have just this aspiration of seeing a lot of UNESCO heritage sites. It came down, quite frankly, between the Santiago and the Kumano, and I decided I would like to go to Japan. So that's how I ended up there. That's great. And it's funny because I think for most of the people who are listening, their entry point is Spain, and they eventually work their way around to Japan if they get there. You know, it's a very small percentage. So you're unusual in the sense that you're starting this experience with pilgrimage in Japan. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because there was something that really drew me to the Kumano Kodo, mainly because of the roots in Shintoism, specifically around the honoring and worshiping nature. 
And that really struck a chord for me, both as, you know, I'm an amateur photographer and I love shooting while on the trail, but also just the, what I felt my mind needed, what my soul needed. Quite frankly, you know, midway through our hike, I started thinking about how I was going to do the Camino in Spain. <laughs> so that's already, that's already in the, in the plans. Once it gets its hooks in you, man, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's addictive. It and, is. and you know, what's really addictive about it is quite frankly, just the time in nature, the time to think, the time to reflect. It was a huge added bonus to be there with my father. We haven't had that time since I was in high school mm -hmm. <laughs> to really sit back and, and have long conversations. It's typically, you know, I'm driving home from work and I'm calling him and I'm catching up on a few things. But to have hours and hours on the trail, sometimes we didn't see anyone else on the trail. It was amazing. It was profound. What itinerary did you decide to follow there? Because there's a lot of different ways of going about the Kumanokoto. What approach did you take and how did you plan this? There's a lot of different options, and there were a lot of things that I initially set out and saying, you know, this is a prerequisite. I, I definitely want to see that. But what it really came down to was I wanted to hike longer than five days. And so what that really did for me is position me to basically do some or parts of more than one of the routes. And so I narrowed down to a nine-day hike and did a lot of research. And, and quite frankly, in the community that I joined to understand how other people do it, there are a lot of people who will plan as they go and a lot of people who will self-plan. We actually went with a tour group company mm -hmm. that planned our itinerary for us. So knowing that we wanted to be on the trail for nine days, it positioned us to do the Nakahechi to start and then to do the Kohechi to finish. So we did basically two routes in nine days. And did you do the Kohechi towards Koyasan, not away from it? Yeah. So we went from Takajiri to Hangu mm -hmm. and then spent a day there and then went from Hangu to Koyasan. Before we get into that walk, I want to take a step back and I'm asking you some practical questions just because I think for a lot of people, it's so foreign that they don't even know where to begin. Did you fly into Osaka, and then how did you get from there to the starting point? We flew into Osaka. My dad flew directly from San Francisco to Osaka. I did not have that luxury. I flew in from Raleigh to Seattle and Seattle to Osaka. We were a little worried because it was literally the day after the super typhoon Hagabus oh, had man. hit Japan. So I was a little worried that that was going to affect it. And honestly, the tail end of that storm did affect our time on the trail. But we landed on time, spent the night in Osaka, took a train from the Shin Osaka station all the way down to Tanabe, and then spent the night there. And then the next morning took a bus from the tourism center there to Takajiri to start the Nakahechi. Do you or your father speak any Japanese? We do not. So how was it? just managing all of that? It was fine. We picked up some basics in Japanese. We had Google Translator, <laughs> which helped <laughs> quite a bit. That was also something that we wanted to make sure was okay because he does not eat seafood as well. So that was a challenge. Um, <laughs> and part of the reason why we went with the tour that helped us arrange some of that for us. But we managed okay. We saw a lot of people who were very open and very willing to forgive our horrible Japanese 
uh, <laughs> but appreciated our efforts. And it was just a great, deep, immersive experience to be there, not in a city, not in a super touristy place, but just a great area to experience and to appreciate uh, the natural beauty because it's, it's just a beautiful area. Yeah. Could you talk more? You've had to describe this probably to everyone you know. I imagine almost nobody that you've ever talked to about it has any familiarity with the route. So what are some of the defining qualities that you like to call out when you're in that position of having to describe it? First and foremost, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, very serene, hilly, rocky, lots of beautiful streams and waterfalls. It felt very much intentional in how the trail cut through nature, but not in a way that I'm used to in other places. You know, even in parts of the Appalachian Trail, which I've hiked through our national park experiences, seems to be deliberately cut, right? The trail deliberately cut from one trailhead to one waterfall or something like that. This felt to be really following the contours of the mountainside or following the contours of the stream. And we did not feel like we were intruding in natural beauty. Instead, we felt like we were walking alongside it. And it was quite remarkable to see trails that were built from wood and rock that clearly were built for a reason, to be walked on. But it did not feel like it was exploiting the natural beauty. In fact, it it felt like we were a guest. We were part of something that was just beautiful from the start. And it was truly a remarkable feeling and humbling. So it was interesting for me because I've done a lot of hiking. And in the past, I've always viewed it as I'm going from point A to point B and what an accomplishment that was. And I quickly changed my mindset that every step was an accomplishment, that every step in that journey is the destination. I just published a blog post on it just this week that it is something I'm still working through. It's something that as a photographer and a content creator and someone that's used to building out tips and itineraries for people, it's not like that at all. I'm still working through it mentally to figure out what is the true totality of the impact. That's always a challenge, making meaning out of it in the aftermath. You walked both the Nakahechi and Kohechi routes. And the vast majority of people who walk the Kumanokoto do the Nakahechi, but maybe not the Kohechi. How would you compare them? The Kohechi is very, very challenging. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, full disclosure, we actually skipped two of the sections that we were supposed to walk. And that's where kind of that super typhoon comes into play. So first of all, the elevation gain way higher, the amount of secondary trails that bisect it was more prevalent. So I felt like we had to be very, very aware of the signage and very, very aware of the change in the weather. It poured. We guessed we probably added, you know, 10 to 15 pounds of just water weight (laughs) um, because of how waterlogged we were. So it was incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding. The Nakahechi was a beautiful approach to Hangu, very satisfying to receive my pilgrimage stamp and to congregate there at that grand shrine at the end. But once we jumped on the Kohechi, it felt like a totally different trail. It's definitely more rugged, less developed, more exposed. It, it doesn't have all of the resources and facilities of the Nakahechi. Yeah, 
it downpoured on two of our major days. <laughs> oh, <right>? God. <laughs> so when we went from Chikatsuyu to Hangu, it was supposed to take us about eight hours, and it took us almost 11 and a half because it was downpouring. <laughs> that was really challenging. But we had other people with us so that we felt at least in control. But when we went from Yagio to Tatsukawa on the Kohechi, it was just my dad and I for almost 10, 10 and a half hours. I saw the most amazing things that I am so grateful that I witnessed. But there were times that were really trying. And honestly, that I don't regret it. It really contributed to what I needed. I needed that silence. I needed that challenge. I needed that mental challenge. And to share that with my dad, who, who I'm very close with, is just an amazing, humbling experience. Where were the other walkers from? So we really only matched up with other hikers at the inns that we stayed at, mm -hmm. but many from Australia. Yeah. We met a couple from Switzerland, and we met a couple of people towards the end of our hike, towards Koyasan, from the United States, but very few Americans, mostly from Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, that's consistent with my experience. And of course, Japanese pilgrims. Did you see any vipers? <laughs> no. We were worried. We were worried about the hornets and we were worried about snakes. I honestly, I wasn't really worried, but we were watching out for them. Yeah. But no, we didn't, we didn't really see anything, mainly because we were under a hood and, <laughs> and it was flooding. <laughs> so, and, and honestly, that was the reason why it took us the longest amount of time is not the actual distance. It was the slippery rocks on the descent was really challenging because it was like hiking down a stream. So we really couldn't have planned it better, I guess, in one perspective or worse in another <laughs> perspective, but I wouldn't trade it. How far did you walk each day and were you happy with that? Inevitably, we walked about 70 miles in nine days. The total itinerary was 90. There were some days when we were hiking 10 to 15 miles and some were four to six miles. Those four to six mile distances should not fool you. They had higher elevation gain. <laughs> <laughs> they all felt equally challenging. Yeah. And I was happy with it, but I wasn't looking to accomplish. I was looking to appreciate. And that shifted, by the way, that shifted midway during the hike. I set out to say, we're going from here to here. And very quickly, I said, that wasn't the point. The point was, I'm making one step at a time next to someone who I've known my entire life, because he's my dad. That is what the journey was. We did 70 miles and we retired. I slept a lot when I got home. <laughs> Beyond the walk itself, were there other activities or experiences or just encounters that you found notable or valuable? After we finished the Nakahachi, we spent a night at Yunamin Onsen. Mm -hmm. And hard boiling the eggs in the water was a neat experience. <laughs> and for those who aren't familiar, there's a natural hot springs and you make what they call an onsen tamago and you buy eggs and put it right in the water. And that was neat to do. Definitely on the Kohechi part, we did not see that many other people. One of the nights, though, we stayed at a farm in Miraguchi and stayed with a couple and we were the only ones there. And it was amazing. <laughs> Not only was it amazing in that the woman who lives there had a translator, so we were able to have full conversations with each other. She did not speak English at all. And it was a great time for us to just decompress a little bit and recharge. 
and we did laundry and we went on a little day hike and it was really the one day that was not rainy. Mm -hmm. So that was a great experience because it was like we were eating dinner in their home. It was my favorite meal. But the majority of the significant experiences that I had on this trip, on this pilgrimage, really focuses around the time I had with my dad to just have really deep conversations about life, about the future, about our place in the world, and to really reflect. That's something that I've never taken the time to do and to put myself in a physical challenge and an emotional challenge with someone who knows me and is a confidant and that I can learn from was very, very helpful. It's not something I think I would have gotten if I did it by myself. That's awesome. Could you describe Hongu? Because like I said at the beginning, lots of people listening are familiar with Santiago. They know what it's like to get to that destination, to get to the cathedral. They're familiar with what that looks like. What is Hongu like as a sacred site? And how did you interact with that setting? Remember, this is coming off of like 10 hours of hiking in the rain. <laughs> Marching down to the north approach of Hongu, the Grand Shrine, uh, the Hongu Taisha, was so amazing. It is one thing to see small shrines along the path, but then to converge with other hikers who, quite frankly, we didn't know there were that many on the trail. And some were coming from other approaches as well. But to see everyone converge into the same shrine was not only satisfying and relaxing, but just very deeply spiritual. There are two areas, right? One is where the original shrine was, but that got destroyed in the late 1800s due to flooding. And so they rebuilt part of it further up, which is where we ended up and what completed our official pilgrim status on the Nakahechi. Honestly, I'm kind of at a loss for words. It, it is a combination of a place that is deeply meaningful and spiritual to those who were there and who were offering up things at the shrine. But for me, it was just more impactful to know that generations and generations of pilgrims before me had done that same trail, had walked those same paths, had gone through that same gate. And that is the part that is very meaningful. There were probably 100x more people who have walked to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, which is beautiful. It's beautiful to see the Grand Canyon from the south rim. The north rim is beautiful as well, but it's different. It wasn't necessarily the people. It was the path in which it took you there. And to then end up there together is quite remarkable. So we spent two nights there. So it was nice to finish our route there. And then we did a small hike up and back the next day to, again, recharge our batteries before starting on the Kohechi. Did this walk give you the spiritual reset that you were seeking? It put me on the path. I had set out to do this pilgrimage for that spiritual reset to take me out of the day-to-day, -day, the very busy work and family life that I had, to take me out of the conditioning of posting a status on my Facebook or responding to emails. It took me out of my day-to-day -day zone. And for that, I saw immediate benefits. In terms of the spiritual reset, it put me on the path towards that reset. I am looking at things differently. I'm behaving differently since I've returned. The way in which I view the world 
is changing. And part of that is less about the ever-changing world around me. It's more about my approach to those things. But quite honestly, I'm still figuring that out. Even though it's been two plus months since I've returned, I don't see it in sight of here's that moment of clarity or the totality of meaning. But it has definitely put me on the path. And it's something that I'm still seeking and, and searching for. And, and here's an example. You know, I'm a morning runner. I've always ran listening to podcasts or listening to music. And now more than ever, I don't put anything in my ear. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I run super early in the morning and I just listen. I just listen to nature. That's something I didn't do prior to hiking the Kamano. Well, good deal. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for talking with me. There still aren't that many people, especially in the U.S., who have the experience of the Kumano Kodo. So it's great of you to be willing to share your experience. Like I said, it was a very humbling and impactful experience that I really think for those who are seeking, especially those who have done the Santiago, they're looking to possibly have a similar impactful experience, but on different terrain, certainly different culture. It is quite remarkable. So I'm, as you mentioned, I'm doing maybe the opposite path that a lot of people do, but I'm now in the planning stage of trying to make a trip out to Spain in the beginning of 2021. didn't want to brag or anything, but since Mike brought it up, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. Dual Pilgrim number 500. Let me tell you the story. It was March 30th, 2016. It was my fifth day walking on the Kumano Koro. I had started in Koyasan and walked the Kohechi to Hongu Taisha, the shrine that is where the Roots Pilgrimage Certificate is issued. I didn't get the certificate then, <laughs> a fateful choice, as I still had more walking in front of me. Instead, I bust out to Tanabe and then walked the Nakahechi route, arriving back in Hongu two days later. I ran into three pilgrims on that walk on the 30th. The first two were an Australian couple. They were jazzed about the dual pilgrim certificate. They were really looking forward to it. That had been a major impetus behind their decision to come to Japan, though the relative proximity to their country didn't hurt. After a short conversation, I marched merrily ahead. I then ran into a pilgrim from San Francisco and chatted for an hour or so before she stopped for a break, and I continued onward. Eventually, I made it to Hongu, where I proceeded to the Kumano Hongu Heritage Center. I marched to the counter, presented my two credentials, one from Spain, one from Japan, and prepared to receive my dual pilgrim certificate. After the man at the counter inspected my paperwork, he then walked over to a colleague, who gave them an even closer look. I surveyed the room, and noticed heads poking up from behind cubicle walls, like prairie dogs, looking at me and the two Japanese staffers. All of a sudden, people kicked into action. There was a flurry. One man hustled into a back room. Another picked up a phone and started speaking quietly but urgently. New people came into the room. I watched all of this with some concern wondering if I had stumbled into some cultural faux pas. It didn't take too much longer before another man approached me. He spoke English and informed me that I was the recipient of a special honor, that I was dual pilgrim number 500, and he asked me if I would be willing to participate. I agreed. 
Little did I know what was ahead. Before I knew it, I was surrounded by a dozen people. Photographers, translators, journalists, honored officials, and a woman in traditional garb who would be my constant companion through the next hour, supporting me in the many photos to come. We started with gifts. I was presented with a conical hat, an arrow, a set of chopsticks, a fan, a small plaque, tea. I'm forgetting a few others. They're all socked away somewhere safe. But with each gift, we posed for a new picture. There was a large commemorative dual pilgrim certificate, like one of those giant checks that they give away with sweepstakes. Though that was just for the photo. I didn't get to keep it. Mine was regular sized. We then proceeded up to the shrine, all 12 or so of us. I was honored with a ceremony, first receiving a blessing from a Shinto priest and then entering the inner chamber of the shrine. We rang the bells. We took pictures, then more pictures. Other pilgrims looked at me, wondering who the heck I was. I wish I would have understood more of it. It was a whirlwind, an amazing, befuddling, humbling experience. Then we went back to the office, and I carefully bagged up the gifts, thinking first about how wonderful they were, and second about how I had 30 kilometers to walk through the rain the next day to reach Kumano Nachi Taisha. It all worked out. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Mike Rhodes for speaking with me and overcoming a number of logistical and technological challenges. You can find the Tanabe City Kumano Tourism Bureau at tb-kumano.jp. Note the English language option at the top of the page. That's pretty important. Thanks as well to Greg Bing. You can find his blog at The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWoodson.com. Thank you as always for listening.